morning. Wow. <laughs> it's been about a year since I've been up on this seat. Uh, I kind of managed to avoid it for a year. <laughs> and um, actually, I, I felt really grateful to have the opportunity to come and sit here again. Um, it's a chance for me to express appreciation for this practice and also hopefully in some small way to be encouraging for you guys as well. So, um, you know, when I was thinking about what to talk about today, I, I, wanted, I, I realized or I articulated to myself, a lot of these things aren't articulated, um, they're implicit and so the talk actually allows me to uh, bring it to an explicit kind of understanding for myself that two things are motivating me right now, um, uh, motivating my practice, kind of inspiring my practice. Um, one of them is the ecological crisis we're in. Um, it's been so damn windy and warm this winter, uh, with the exception of today. And um, whether that is just normal or not, it, it, it's like the wind stirs up in me uh, a kind of a call, like something is happening to our planet, and I don't want to go to sleep around that. The other thing is, um, for me personally, um, I'm in a process of more deeply waking up to this historic and continuing crisis of structural inequity and violence in so many forms and now it feels like at least if we watch the news that there can be even um, more avenues of uh, opportunity for that kind of violence. Uh, Greg and I bought this statue a long time ago in Florida and I love Dharma talks because it's like she's listening <laughs> and supporting us. This is Kuan Yin, and she is the bodhisattva of compassion, the one they say that hears the cries of the world. And so these two motivations, for me, it feels more important than ever that we um, find a capacity within ourselves to respond to those cries of the world, whether the cries are in our own hearts, in ways that we're suffering personally, whether they're the cries within our relationships with each other, whether they're the cries that we sense within these power structures, and uh, the cries of Mother Earth herself. I've been reading, I, I brought it just to show you guys the cover, I've been reading a great book, I'm in the middle of reading it, um, by an insight teacher called Tanisara. It's called Time to Stand Up. And um, it's, a, it's a manifesto, really, um, a really compelling call for how we might use feminine archetypal energies um, to support and to transform even our Buddhist traditions in a way that we can try to have a livable and safe planet for everybody. She talks about this um, evolutionary transitioning happening in the planet. Uh, and so it feels like more than ever, how do we cultivate these minds and hearts to be able to respond to this? 
you know, as I was walking over this morning, I saw a Wall Street Journal paper. It was folded in half, and all I saw the corner of it was the headline. It said, uh, time for optimism. And it had this little chart, you know, those little charts of the stock market with the little arrows? And I thought, really? <laughs> time for optimism. But, you know, um, actually, I, I, I do feel like there is this um, emerging collective aspiration to respond, that something is waking up. Maybe, you know, my evidence is a little biased because of where I practice, <laughs> but I do feel that it is, it is deeper than just um, a few people. Uh, and that there is this aspiration to respond, to respond to these cries. But I, I do, I'm also a therapist, and I do notice that even though there's this aspiration, there's often something that blocks it, that blocks the aspiration, that there is, we feel stopped by confusion, perhaps. What is it we're going to do? How can we do this? Maybe a sense of powerlessness or helplessness. Uh, you know, a feeling of, like, I can't keep this energy and outrage up for, for the maybe lifetimes is needed in order to be able to respond. Or perhaps we just feel um, powerless or anxious. So uh, in Buddhism, you know, we have, the, we have a name for this thing that stops us from being able to respond skillfully to what's happening to us, especially difficult things. And that's called what we call karmic conditioning. So karmic conditioning uh, for those of you, I think there's a lot of new people here today. I think the Beginner's Mind group is here and Zazen Instruction. So um, just to not make any assumptions about the practice, karmic conditioning are those habit patterns of our body and our mind and our speech. Um, and for example, the body, it could be just a habitual tightening that happens when we um, have somebody new coming at us or uh, the speech, habitual patterns of speech might be like every time you make a mistake, you say, you stupid schmuck, you know, to yourself, or um, the way that we act in the world in a way that feels protective. So these karmic conditionings, and they're both known to us and unknown. A lot of it is just there, a kind of procedural under the surface. But all of these things act to create a sense of separation uh, from both our aspiration as well as, 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 our, as the world. We see it as separate, and it gives us this sense of a separate self, in this case, Laura. Uh, so many of us, which is the good news, come to practice because we begin to feel the restrictiveness of that conditioning. It's almost like you know, when you're wearing clothes that are too tight for you, and you want to just like pull them off, and uh, it's like that. We, we kind of feel that we are bound by this, you know, and perhaps this restrictiveness is just being tired of being swept away by emotions such as anxiety or fear or anger. Perhaps we're tired of the frustration we feel when we find ourselves in situations that are untenable for us and we try to fix or control them or other people. So, uh, so in, order our, in order to be freed up from this conditioning and to be able to hear the cries of the world and to be able to respond, we work with our conditioning. That's kind of the major project that goes on here at Zen Center. 
and uh, in Buddhism in general. So the good news is, and is that we have this path for doing that, and we don't package it. You know, it's not like a 12-week program. You know, <laughs> you're going to get from here to here. It's much more organic, but it is like tried and true, like 3,500 years tried and true. So um, I have deep and unabiding faith in it. So I want to use a teaching story to help kind of explicate this a little bit more. As, as those of you have listened to me before, where's my glasses? Okay, my, my security blanket. Okay, I can't read anything without it. So this is the book called Hidden Lamp. It's a teaching stories. And these are, uh, teaching stories are the way that we kind of try to embody the process of waking up. And this is teaching stories of female ancestors that were collected um, by uh, some other contemporary female teachers. And so I want to read you one of them. And then, we'll kinda, and then we'll talk it out. I'll talk it out for you. This teaching story is um, from China in the 17th century. And it's called Ziyong's Earth. So here it is. Oh, and Ziyong, just to say, um, was a Chinese nun. She was born in 1645. She spent most of her life in pilgrimage, and um, towards the end of her life, she was actually the abbess, which is the head of um, three different convents in China. So what happens in these stories is usually it's an engagement with two people challenging each other. And um, in this case, it's a, a male monk. A monk asked Master Ziyong Qianru, 30 blows, are they the actions of a man or an enlightened being? And Ziyong replied, just as long as the fellow isn't beaten to death. The monk then challenged further and said, when you speak, the congregation assembles like clouds. In the end, who is this great hero among women? Ziyong said, each and every person has the sky over their head. Each and every one has the earth under their feet. The monk gave a shout. Ziyong said, what is the point of recklessly shouting like that? <laughs> the monk then bowed respectfully, and Ziyong said, the Dharma does not rise up alone. It can't emerge without reliance on the world. If I take up the challenge of speaking, I must surely Surely borrow the light and the dark, the form and the emptiness of the mountains and hills and the great earth, and the calls of the magpies and the cries of the crows. The water flows and the flowers blossom, brilliantly preaching without ceasing. In this way, there is no restraint. So, 30 blows, are they the actions of a man or an enlightened being? <clears throat> so, as I said, much of our practice is we actually study this conditioning, this sense of separation, which in the story this monk is calling the actions of a man. What is it inside of us that limits this capacity to be open, to be kind, to be authentic, to be spontaneous, to feel empowered, to be skillful with ourselves and with others? And in Zen, we have so many practices to look at this. Suzuki Roshi, our 
the, the teacher that um, born this lineage, San Francisco Zen Center lineage, says, the true practice asks something of you. So when we, when we come in and we really engage in practice, we're actually asking a lot of ourselves. We're asking ourselves to have the courage and the strength and the tenacity to go towards what is uncomfortable, which is just not an easy thing to do. We're asking ourselves to go against those habits because our habits are mostly designed to get away from what's uncomfortable and to go towards what makes us feel safer. So it's asking that of us. It's asking us to explore ethical guidelines. I, <laughs> this is like now my teaching. You know, we have ethical guidelines like do not steal. Okay, so we look at that in our lives, not theoretically. To this morning, I'm on open leash. Every morning, I'm open leash with my dogs. And the first, m m the first weekend of every month, there is what's called FIDO. So the people who, who organize it so we can all go out there, very generous group, they offer treats, they offer bagels. It's great. And they also offer balls. And there's nothing my dog loves <laughs> more than balls. And I love to throw balls for them. And there's a, a kind of a person with a little basket throwing balls around. So what happens to me is every month, all I want to do is collect balls. I want to like collect all the balls that are being given out and thrown and found on the floor. And, um, and I'm stealing. <laughs> and I know I'm stealing. And, I, I, and Greg says I'm a terrible thief because I look all around and I look <laughs> completely guilty. <laughs> And it happened this morning, you know, because my, my ball, my ball, you know, inventory is running a little low. They don't, you know, the, they lose the balls. So, and they're big and bright and yellow on this green field. They're just very enticing. So I was watching myself this morning. Now here I'm about to give this talk, right? And um, I see balls. And I look around, doesn't really look like that ball belongs to anybody, so I'm going to grab it. And I do it like as if that ball was mine all along. And I grab it and I put it in my bag. And, and you know, after 20 minutes, I've got like eight balls. <laughs> and then something starts to happen inside of me and I feel uncomfortable. I, I kind of know that I'm stealing. And there's other dogs out there, even though the ball isn't technically claimed, you know, that that ball might find its way to some other dog's mouth, you know? And it's, it's sweet, and it's funny, and it's light, but it's also really painful. And I don't really see any difference, maybe on a smaller scale, between me grabbing all those bell balls from my dogs and the way the society runs where white people grab all the power for themselves, or people with the resources grab all the money for themselves. It's the same thing. And that hurts, and that's humbling. I would love to tell you that I was able to, <laughs> I had the thought, Laura, release all the balls. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't release all the balls. I kept some balls, but I did not grab any more balls. Um, I, I watched, I, I, I had, was tempted and I watched other people pick them up and I was happy about that. But, you know, this is what we're asked. It's like we're asked, that's asking something of me. 
it's so easy to go look and say, oh, look at those power grabs, you know? Where are our power grabs? So we explore ethical guidelines. We explore just those complexities of, of being. Uh, we do other things in here to try to evoke the same kind of uh, mirroring, whether it's ringing the bells and what happens when we do that, being uh, greeting people when they come in. Here at BZC, uh, it asks us to look deeply how we have been conditioned by experiences of oppression and or domination based on race or class or gender. And that's hard work, but that's what we're looking at. And it asks us to try to be real with each other and with our teachers. And most importantly, and what you've all just finished doing, it asks us to sit in meditation and just look at the movement of our body, our hearts, and our minds. And then in doing so, we can see, do we come from a place, and moment to moment, this might change. It's not like we're this or we're that. Are we coming in this moment from a place of separation or connection, from authenticity or protectiveness? So when the monk asks the teacher, is this the act of an enlightened being or a man, we can ask ourselves, where are we coming from? Are we coming from harshness or judgment, from a fixed point of view? You know, when someone, we have a strong response to something we perceive as harmful, are we coming from love or from some egoic place of righteousness or shame? So, how does she respond? What does the teacher do? She says, her response is, just as long as the person isn't beaten to death. So what she's t pointing to is the impact of our actions. That's one of the ways that we can understand how we are being in the world and what our impact is. So what was the result of the action? Was it enhancing life or killing life? When you give somebody feedback or call them out, is life enhanced? Is there, do you sense between the two of you more authenticity, more possibility for connection or intimacy, even if what you said hurts or uh, is uncomfortable? Or is after you do that, something deadened, you know, or more false or more separate? So you can actually do that and inquiry about that. Then the monk said, the way, whatever my intonation is when I, when, I, when I read this line can be an indication of whether there's ego or whether there is a, a kind of a, an openness, right? If, I, if the monk says, who is this great hero among women, you know, versus who is this great hero among women? I mean, we can even look at that to sense what's, what's, what's our conditioning in that moment. So we can't know that for this monk. You know, he might be coming from a place of compassion and or sincerity, sincerity, sincerity to really understand, you know, who is this person and how, how do they hold this space of authority? to help her maybe even wake up if she's holding on to anything as she's sitting up there? Or is he coming out of a place of judgment, skepticism, and doubt about the capacity of a woman to hold the authority? So his question um, really reminds me of Mara, who is uh, the Buddha's nemesis. Uh, and as the Buddha was sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, this is, you know, I, I just think such a powerful story. And the Buddha was getting closer and closer to standing in, the, in his own truth and the truth of things as they are. Mara got threatened. 
And so after throwing many kinds of temptations at him, the biggest and most, uh, biggest weapon he had was doubt. Who do you think you are? And can you imagine as a single female teacher in, in China in 1645, in feudal China, how many times she might have had to face the challenge of, who do you think you are to stand up in your life this way? Throughout most of the historical period, I think only about 13% of um, ordained Buddhists were women. So she would have had to really know her right to her Dharma seat. And, um, you know, when we're identified with our conditioning, we believe things are about us. And we might move between these poles, always poles, of inflation and def deflation, doubt or arrogance. So what does she do? She doesn't go to either one of those poles. She says, each and every person has the sky over their head. Each and every one of us has the earth under our feet. I was saying to Greg, I don't, know which, I don't know which koan to use. And I said, what about this one? And I read him this one. I just started crying. I said, OK, that's it. <laughs> and this moves me because for my, most of my life, I, I have been practiced with and been plagued by doubt. And so when she points, when she points to the Dharma, there's a fundamental truth of all of our inherent worthiness as members of this planet. She's not asking for institutional recognition, though that would probably be helpful, or community validation, but pointing to her, her inherent dignity. And um, if this, if I could strip away all of the offerings and process that I've been in with this practice for the last 20 years, um, I feel most grateful for this ability to more deeply recognize my own dignity and my own sacredness and the sacredness of everybody else. The monk then gave a shout. And Ziyong said, what is the point of recklessly shouting like, about like that? And um, I always look to John, because I hear <laughs> such a fan of the koans, too, yeah? And um, so many of the traditional koans are filled with uh, two men waking each other up through, to quote Dogen, through a fist, a staff, or a shout, right? So uh, a little bit of a gendering <laughs> piece in here. There's many ways to wake people up, and sometimes a shout is a good way. But the point is, what is the purpose of the shout? What is the intention? This is what we're always looking at. What is the intention when we do that? What's the intention when he shouted? Was it compassion or was it bravado? Is he using the shout to enhance vulnerability or intimacy or to hide from it? And that's another question we can ask ourselves. Well, she received it as reckless. <laughs> 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 
And, he, and then he bowed to her in appreciation. And his bow to her is also a teaching. And I think sometimes we miss this teaching in community. We are mirrors for each other. We take risks with each other, and we let ourselves be seen in all of our messiness. When people come to me and they let me know that I had done something unskillful, that I had hurt their feelings or missed them in some way, I really want to bow to them. And we ask ourselves to step into this community, to step into communities that, where we aren't so safe or comfortable, and notice and get to feel and notice what we've kept hidden even from ourselves. So easy to trick ourselves if we're among these homogeneous communities that just say, yes, whatever you, you know, you're wonderful, right? Or hide what's difficult. But, you know, even going the open leash, right? I get a, I get a lesson, I get a teaching. And we show up even when we don't feel like it, or we don't trust the teachings, because we have a commitment to each other and to the Dharma over our own preferences. So we get a capacity to, to develop our braveness, our fierceness. And that's what we're developing to take out into the so-called world. Right? So then Ziyong says, the Dharma does not rise up alone. It can't emerge without reliance on the world. And this is um, something, again, that I think gets missed. We need our suffering in order to wake up. We can't develop compassion and we can't develop wisdom without our suffering. So we just have to recognize that's the opportunity. So if we screw up and we give us ourselves an onslaught of shame or blame or guilt or judgment, we miss the opportunity. It's just like reifying the mess. We miss the opportunity to say, OK, I have an opportunity right now to practice patience, acceptance, patience, compassion, generosity, right there with that shit, with that ball. You know, what was underneath my need to grab all those balls, right? Some deep sense of not enough. So we learn this in practice, to be patient and tender. And as I've been saying, we need each other to wake up. I don't think we can do it without community. And in a deeper sense, we could say that this teaching is about the teaching of dependent co-arising, that the whole world is supporting us. We are always relying on the whole world, whether we acknowledge it or not. I mean, we really are. In this moment, we're relying on our bodies to get here. We're relying on the earth underneath our, 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 our feet. We're relying on the eno, right, to hold the space. We're relying on the breath, our breath, the air. You know, and I think life gets a lot easier if we stop pretending that we're not and acknowledge that we are. Not a separate thing that can do it all herself or himself. 
this. So then, if I take up the challenge of speaking, she says, I must surely borrow the light and the dark, the form and the emptiness of the mountains and the hills and the great earth. And this light and dark, you know, when our hearts and minds are divided, we lose contact with the truth of life. We just replicate the mess we're in. And Angel, last week, did just a beautiful talk about how we cannot respond to this violence in the world if our hearts are divided. We just can't. We're just doing the same thing. And when we come from this place of only wanting to be good, to be right, to be secure, we disrespect the wholeness of life, and we're not aligned with the force that actually can respond and transform the world. So, so we can have freedom even within our conditioning. I don't have to be a person who selflessly gives away every ball that I see, but I can wake up within that and hold some kindness and patience with my process, <laughs> you know, while I recognize the truth of my selfishness and the fact that that ball isn't mine. And, and, I, and really what happens in this practice is a humility, humility of being human. Not like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be good, humility. And humility and dignity go together. So the practice creates a humility that actually frees us up to engage, to bow when someone you know, points something out to us. And to be able to really look and see how our positions of privilege, they inherently create suffering for ourselves and for other people. So her last line, the water flows and the flowers blossom, brilliantly preaching without ceasing. In this way, there is no restraint. Uh, so she's reminding us that the earth is alive. And it's speaking the Dharma to us if we have the humility to listen. The crows are speaking to us. The subway rats are speaking to us. They're expressing something. And it's just heartbreaking that we treat nature as an object and each other to be bought, to be sold, to be used, to be for our benefit only without any consideration for how that affects others. So we have to wake up out of this sense of ourselves as separate so that we stop manipulating everything and be a force for something else. So when we do speak and act as life and on behalf of life, we don't have to restrain ourselves. We don't have to feel concerned or worried. That's why in Zen, we were asked to care for the broom and the carrot and the toilet paper. <laughs> with the same care as a precious baby. It's a training, as the Metasutta says, like a mother at the risk of her child, the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So, you know, we fail at this over and over again. We notice how we got, we looked away and got distracted when someone was talking to us, or how we left the water running too long. 
or how we carelessly threw something out because we forgot to recycle it or didn't remember. And if we listen, we can hear the cries of Mother Earth when we treat her with disrespect. So I want to end with one quick little story, again from this book. It's a teaching story called The Old Woman's Miraculous Powers. And this is also China, this time in the, uh, it says the 8th, 9th centuries. And uh, so Magu, Naguan, and another monk were on pilgrimage. Along the way, they met a woman who had a tea shop. The woman prepared a, lot of, a pot of tea and brought three cups. She said to them, O oh monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. The three looked at each other and the woman said, Watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. Then she picked up the tea, she picked up the cups, poured the tea, and went out. Isn't Zen great? <laughs> so, the culmination of our practice is not to have some incredible, like, enlightenment powers where we float in the sky and never make a mistake and are all-knowing and completely skillful 100% of the time. <laughs> it's to be, you know, this extraordinary um, to be able to see the miracle of pouring a cup of tea. That, that's a simple expression of love and of courage. And to look for those expressions of love and courage, the simple ones, in the small moments and then in the big moments. So relieving the, the monks maybe were on retreat and they were thirsty, and the, the old woman poured them a cup of tea. That's it, relieving the thirst of the monks in that moment. But I think we, we, we miss it. We miss it all day long. It is happening. We're looking for some big thing, and it's right there. So to pour the cup of tea for those monks or to open the door with a smile when someone walks through the, on the other side is to ease the suffering of the world. And we can ask that question, you know, what is it to ease the suffering of the world in this moment? And even if I'm pouring that cup of tea and my mind is going, aren't I great I'm pouring this cup of tea for those monks, right? That's okay. That's okay. The wake mind's also there. Right? It's just like, oh, we have to remember and just rediscover that aspiration to be in service of alleviating suffering. So whether we sense our awake mind or not, it's there. We're just trying to get out of the way of it. So it's not so far away. And I think all these little small acts really have um, incredible impact on the world. So we don't have to be discouraged. <sighs> I think that's it for me. Yeah. And um, thank you. And I 
I'm grateful for your presence and I am encouraged by everyone who returns and people who show up for the first time and have the courage to walk through the door and check this out. And um, we're here to encourage you and to cur- en- for you to encourage us. So, um, Ino-san, it is 11.40. Do we have time for a couple questions? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Or comments? Oh, before I, before I do end this, um, one of the things that happens is you start to be grateful for so many things. And there is a teacher in our tradition, Reb Anderson, who I am beyond grateful for. He is um, a San Francisco Zen Center elder. He's a teacher of mine, a teacher of Greg's. He's a teacher of our teacher, Tia. He is an incredible, beautiful man who's come here every year um, to, and he's wrote a book about the F, uh, about precepts. Anyway, he fell, he had a hip replacement. And he, he's trying to come in May. I mean, he's very, he's a force, of, no restraint there, you know? So if he can do it, he's gonna hobble his way back to New York and be with us for five days. So basically, this is a big plug for signing this card for him. So we could send it out and let him feel you know, a big hug from, from Brooklyn. So I'm going to leave it out there. And even if you don't know him, if you just want to sign the card, that would be great. So questions, comments? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, these stories are lovely because this is just what came up for me with this story, right? For somebody else, a whole other world will emerge of Dharma from this story. And I know these stories are not, they're not separate either. They're contextualized within a historical frame that I don't, you know, that I, I have like so little awareness of. So I don't know why 30 blows, but for me, um, you know, when someone is giving you a strong response, right? Like that time I gave you a strong response to go back to the Zendo, right? Like, where was I coming from in that moment, right? Was I coming from like, John, practice. Your life is precious, get back in that Zendo. Or was I a control freak at that moment, you know? (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> Maybe a bit of both. I, I, um, I can really feel at this point when I am coming from some um, self-view, which is I'm bad, you know? And if I come from that self-view of like, or I want to be good, if I come from that self-view, then I, I don't act at that moment. Because um, it's, really, it's really protection, you know? And... Um, And I, and I try to, to um, include myself in. So for example, another thing on the open leash this morning, um, my dog was having a great time pulling a, a stick with this other dog. Um, and it was owned by a person who uh, was primarily Spanish speaking. And he had a partner with her who was only Spanish speaking. And um, and I felt this kind of like um, pain that I didn't know how to speak Spanish. He had to translate, and I couldn't really engage with her in, in that way. And you know, right there in that moment, I could have went to shame or guilt or you know, what kind of person am I? You know, and it, I had to kind of just w- kind of hold that line, right? Um, he didn't mind translating. He was very kind and open. I had to just kind of feel the little bit of wish, you know, that I had 
at some point in my life developed the capacity to be able to communicate with people who are Spanish speaking, you know? Um, but, and maybe that, that pain can fuel an intention to do a little bit more, to work a little harder, to figure out, you know, what skills I want to have in order to be able to be more effective. But I had to do that with a complete acceptance, like, okay, here's where I am, you know, and this is who I am. I can't do it all, you know, <laughs> and I wish I didn't have this thing disconnecting me right now, and I take responsibility for it, and, um, and hopefully that might help motivate me, but if I turn, even for a little moment, into a sense of badness or, or shame, or if I turn a little bit and being like, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't need to worry about that, you know, no big deal. I'm off. Yeah. So, and believe me, I, I get caught up in shame and guilt, and I get caught up in like a lot of self-justification. So, but but more than that, now I kind of see what's going on. One more, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Lisa. In a way, this has been my koan. You know, how do I, how do I be, you know, speak without restraint and also not harm. Yeah, and for me, um, this feels, at least in my own history, as very strong gender conditioning. You know, that my not speaking is also colluding with a kind of conditioning about how dare you. <laughs> you know, um, also it's it's it, the not speaking can come from this. Um, I I I characterize as this perfectionism born out of whiteness, like I need to be perfect and I need to be good and I, I, I have to you know, make sure I get it just right so I'm not going to speak until I get it just right. Not, not, that's a disaster, you know. So um, what your question reminds me of, and I take the teaching from Reb, you know, if we speak what's happening for us, you know, with a lot of awareness and recognizing that we're coming from a limited view, you know, if I, then we are more likely to do no harm, you know. I acknowledge to myself and perhaps to the other, I am, I am speaking from a view that is limited by my gender, you know, or, or by, you know, or by my energy right now. I have a lot of energy. I'm angry. I don't want to speak from my anger, but I need to speak. So, Please, I'm sorry if I, you know, you know. Sometimes we wait till we we don't have that energy, but that's also can be a real trick, you know. So sometimes we have to take that risk. And like she says, we borrow, we borrow from the mountains and we borrow from the hills. We borrow from something that is beyond our ego, a recognition, right, that our conditioning is limited, and that we borrow from that intention to want to connect you know, from, a, from an intention to alleviate suffering for ourselves and for the other person. So if we borrow that and we hold that and we acknowledge that and then we speak and then we don't just like end there, we check it out. How was that received? Did, it, did, it, did the person kind of feel my truth, feel my re aliveness? Or did, it, did something happen for that person and then maybe we make an adjustment on behalf of that? You know, or maybe the conditions are not really good right now, and we go away and we come back when we have a little more clarity. 
Does that help, Lisa? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.